You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today is another special session of a series that we've been conducting in this podcast focused on the Department of Defense and its special assets. I'm joined in this endeavor with Admiral Thomas Cullison, Senior Associate CSIS. Admiral Cullison and I have been working together for over a decade on many of these same issues, and Admiral Cullison will say a few words about some of the important work that's coming forward very soon. This is episode number 130-130 of our coronavirus crisis update, which we began back in February of 2020. Our special guest today is Matt Hepburn. I just want to say a few words about Matt. First of all, Matt, thanks so much for taking time out of your day there at the White House to be with us. Absolutely. You're very welcome. And I'm so glad that you're doing this and sort of creating this this record from a bunch of different viewpoints and expertise about this pandemic. I, I can imagine 10 years from now or 20 years from now, people are going to really be looking back and learning a lot from this endeavor. So thank you for including me. Thanks, Matt. I want to say a few words about you because you occupy a very remarkable and unique place um, in our government. Over the arc of your career in the U.S. military, 23 years, you exited a few years back as a colonel, and the work that you've done outside of the military in senior roles in the U.S. government, you've really been a pioneer on pandemic preparedness, on biodefense, on technological innovations, and thinking about data and and the surveillance and genomic sequencing and the like. Matt's an MD, Bachelor of Science, and MD degree from Duke. As I mentioned a moment ago, 23-year career, very distinguished within the U.S. military. He came to the White House on special assignment of the National Security Council in 2010 to 2013, following the H1N1 pandemic, and where he began really applying those, those skills in that context of the White House on how to do better on pandemic preparedness. He moved over to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, in 2013 to 2019, where where many, many innovations were driven forward. We'll hear a bit about those. He moved from there over to Operation Warp Speed, what is now called the Countermeasures Acceleration Group at the White House, when President Trump formed that Operation Warp Speed to accelerate the development of vaccines. And now Matt is at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, responsible for technological developments, vaccines, therapies, tests, but also looking at surveillance and genomic sequencing options as we build a multi-year strategy. That's a long-winded, but I think very worthy introduction, Matt. Your career is quite remarkable, and uh, you continue to be very high impact and important to the story of how we build back better in this in this period. So I'm going to turn over to Admiral Cullison to lead off the discussion. And again, thanks, Matt, for being with us. Over to you, Admiral Cullison. Steve, thank you very much. And Matt, welcome. A very warm welcome from all of us. Uh, as you well know, the Department of Defense has made many contributions to combating infectious disease over the years in biosafety, biosecurity, basic and applied science research, public health, and many, many other areas. Steve and I, as he mentioned, have looked into several of these over the past decade and more. Much of this is focused on diseases that affect our forces as they deploy around the world, these diseases that rarely, if ever, are seen at home in the United States. As part of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, we're soon publishing a paper that outlines what DOD brings to the plate in this area, 
much of which you've been involved in, in one way or another during your long career in the Army and your various positions as Steve just outlined since. Let's begin with where you see the COVID pandemic today, both at home and around the world. We seem to be in a lull. When is that going to stay or where are we headed? So start with the how often are our predictions about this pandemic correct? <laughs> so the, the classic is prepare to be surprised, right? So I think all, most experts would agree that oftentimes when we think that something's going to happen or we are compelled to believe or hope something's going to happen, we've been proven wrong. And so I guess I'm trying to frame it here as we can certainly hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So I think to start start with acknowledging that it's inherently um, difficult to predict. Second, then by saying, let's do our best to continue to conduct the surveillance and the data and, and our ability to understand what's happening right now, what's happening in other countries and what's what may happen in the United States in the near term and be able to react react as quickly as possible if things go worse. I think probably just two things quickly. Um, I think what what's going to happen in the United States, one of the things that I'm very concerned about is, is when you look at our vaccination status in the United States, you know, give or take a little less than 100 million uh, Americans have received their third dose. But the key fact is most of those Americans receive their third dose that's not an ongoing rate. The third dose vaccination uh, daily rate has dropped to very, very low. So what that means is, is that if you, can, if you can project six months ahead of when most people got their third dose, it really puts us in the summer. And the six-month period, this idea of when have we seen waning immunity after the first few doses of this vaccine? And it seemed, you know, give or take, if the waning immunity occurs after six months, you, you still have the memory response. But if we, you can imagine a population with waning immunity coupled with the next version of variant. And, you know, I don't need to remind people, the summer doesn't save us with coronavirus. We had our, we had a terrible Delta wave really that started in August, if you recall, in the South. And so I am concerned about a future wave and I'm concerned about a future wave where we may, we may have uh, waning immunity in our population, either from natural infection or vaccination. Worldwide, we're seeing the continued tragedy and catastrophic consequences. I think the Hong Kong is a recent example, and, and it's, it's, it's worth those that want to study this to study very deeply what happened in Hong Kong and how, how terrible it was. We don't know what's going to happen as sort of this next version of Omicron spreads to different places, but it's going to hit it's going to hit a lot of countries that have yet to be hit. It's going to hit them very hard. On that score, can I just interrupt for a moment here? You know, the, there's been a lot of debate around how do, you, how do countries get out from under zero COVID, and there's a declining number of those countries, Hong Kong being one area that is that really missed the boat, particularly on, on vaccination of the elderly, and now they're just getting hammered. And of course, China is really adhering quite, quite fiercely to zero COVID, as is DPRK, North Korea. Others like Australia, New Zealand, Singapore have done better in trying to manage an orderly transition. How concerned are you about the situation in China in particular? Very. I mean, I just think sort of the Omicron variant, either, either the original or now the BA2 variant, is just extraordinarily contagious. It is just truly, truly extraordinarily contagious. And, and you know, I 
at the beginning of this pandemic, when we talked about the contagiousness of even the original COVID-19 virus, I, I just find it stunning. I just find it stunning how contagious this, this virus continues to be and, and iterates to be more contagious. I, I think it would be extraordinarily difficult to contain that, even with a very aggressive zero COVID policy. So I, I, I can't see a scenario where there's not significant infection in China and, and in other countries. And the harder question to answer is, what does that wave look like? Does it look like the wave in the United States? Does it look like the wave in the United Kingdom or what's happening in Europe? These are very different dynamics of waves. Um, so what, what a wave would look like in China, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea how that's going to play out. I think the, the harder question is, you know, what can we do about it? And I think we, we go back to vaccination. I do think that more doses of vaccination, you know, educates the immune system, matures the immune system. And also, especially in those where we talk about immunocompromised, but that, you know, that includes that includes older people and your immune system tends to forget. <laughs> you know, so so I think repeated vaccination, booster shots, I think is the is the most important tool in the toolbox. I think we can certainly do the non-pharmacologic and the mitigation measures. I think the other tool in the toolbox that needs to be developed is this idea of testing people as early as possible and then getting them, especially if they're high risk, kind of appropriate antiviral treatments. And so that right now is an expensive proposition and it's a logistically complex proposition, but it's also, we, we've got to expand that tool, not as just a domestic tool, but also as a global tool. It complements vaccination really nicely. It's another, it can be another very powerful form of defense, but we have to work out the cost and logistics and all that goes into the implementation of a program to, to make it, to make it most effective. You know, Matt, one of the things that the CSIS Commission has has focused on is almost a mantra is the uh, cycle of crisis and complacency. We have these spikes and everybody is really concerned and then things seem to calm down and we go back to business as usual. Let me take you back a little bit to your early career as an Army infectious disease specialist where you worked in many of the uh, armies and uh, the military's research laboratories DOD maintains extensive biological research infrastructure all over the world to defend against biological threats from any source, whether they're intentional, accidental, or naturally occurring. The U.S. has overseas labs in many, many places. Many have been in the past and currently accused of being involved in bioweapons research and this type of thing. They're really there to act as a force health protection measure to identify infectious diseases around the world. Could you talk a little bit about these labs, the importance of these labs, why they're there? and why the U.S. should be spending money in places like Indonesia and Peru and Kenya and Thailand for diseases that we never see at home. Yeah, I'd be happy to comment on that. I, I think we should start by kind of the, I always think back of the, the origin or why would the United States sort of care about these things in the first place? And there were, there'd been lessons learned um, throughout our military history. But the, I think the most pertinent one is the devastating effect on combat effectiveness and of lives lost and, and damage uh, during the Second World War with diseases like malaria and other contagious infectious diseases as well. But there was, you know, just it was so obvious 
after the Second World War, that we needed a cutting edge ability to understand, to diagnose and treat these types of infectious diseases if we were going to maintain a worldwide deployed military force. And it, it, it was a it was so important to them that they set up these international relationships. So, I mean, physical physical facilities in a laboratory, yes. But more importantly, international relationships with these countries um, to work in partnership to address these infectious diseases. And, you know, we we used to call them neglected tropical diseases or tropical diseases. And, and I think that's a very dated term because I think they are infections that have occurred across the world. But the, the United States really, after the Second World War, developed these relationships that often take years or even decades to build these research collaborations that led through tons of breakthroughs in infections like malaria and have maintained those to this day. Now, the the key is this network and these relationships have continued to work on diseases like malaria, dengue, and chikungunya, things that occur in, you know, in different parts of the world at different times. But the network has also pivoted to international crises like the current pandemic. And what we found is that those relationships have been incredibly helpful. And, and they've been helpful for our international responses to Ebola, um, but they've also been helpful for worldwide pandemic response as well. Matt, we've also seen that enemies can turn against these in terms of launching misinformation campaigns. I mean, we had to withdraw from Indonesia because of political campaigns against the U.S. We've had to withdraw from Egypt because of broader circumstances. And now we have Russian disinformation directed against the programs of, of partnership in Ukraine with the Ukrainian authorities there. Well, how do you how do you deal with this world today where you have such active misinformation dis yeah, distortions? It's, it's, a, it's a great example of how we have to think differently. And the thinking differently, I, I'm going to even broaden the question in terms of vaccine misinformation, both domestic and global, and sort of combating this idea of how do we strategically communicate about the things that we're doing, not only for foreign policy, applications, but also for health behaviors to encourage people to, that the vaccine is safe and effective and that the vaccine is a much better choice than receiving COVID. So how do we do that? Well, what, what we've always done in the past is we've had vaccine development people like myself, and we've had public health experts working on surveillance. And then we've always said, well, the communication part of that is that's just separate and other people handle that. And these two things aren't coupled. And we don't talk to them. I mean, I've done years and decades of work internationally, you know, in these places. We never talk to communications people, you know, in the Department of Defense or in our government because, well, they do comms and we do vaccine research. And that that distinction has now been proved to be artificial and very detrimental, frankly, decoupling that concept. So the concept going forward is, is that the, the way that we do strategic communications, the way that we address misinformation and, and disinformation, I think should be go hand in hand with the overseas lab public health work that we're doing. And certainly in vaccine development, 
one of our initiatives internally is we're calling it sort of designing for health behaviors. And this is very applicable to the overseas labs. I want to articulate the example, but the concept of designing for health behaviors is, is that if we're thinking about making a next generation diagnostic test, we'll use diagnostics as an example. You can, but this could be for a vaccine or treatment or anything else. And we're going to say, well, we want this to be a home test. Instead of developing the product, getting it approved, and then saying, well, how do you think people are going to use this in the home? You begin with the end in mind, and you, you, you build in the user feedback and the design characteristics and the messaging, even in the early prototypes of that next generation home diagnostics. Kind of seems obvious, but it's actually, usually we don't do this. <laughs> we don't do this very well in our development programs, and that's, we're going to change that. We're going to change that dramatically. Where the designing for the, that early design really plays out, though, is this idea in the military where we design for field use. So in the military, actually, I think we're very good at this. We do our early prototypes and then we put them on ships or we give them to the Marines and they break them. <laughs> so, or we, or we take them, we put them, we put early prototypes with diagnostics as an example in extreme field environments and we understand their performance, not just in the laboratory. Well, that concept is a perfect application for our overseas networks because we can take the early prototypes, we can test and do the field evaluation and give that feedback back. Where we get added benefit, not only just for force health protection there, but you actually get added benefit for the global health community. For again, if we wanna use a diagnostics example, if we have really great, affordable, accurate um, self-diagnostic tests, and we can then figure out how well do they work in you know, very tropical environments or desert environments or very, you know, where there's no power or electricity, very remote environments. We do that type of test and evaluation with our, our overseas networks. And then that informs not only our DOD, but it informs really our global health decision making. So maybe before we would do a large purchase or maybe our international community before they do a large purchase of a diagnostics platform, maybe we should really see how it works in those most extreme and remote locations. And our network is just perfectly situated to do so. One of the things you just mentioned there hits on a main theme that we have in the paper that Steve and I are going to publish in the next couple of weeks. And that is that within DOD, there seem to us to be a lot of stovepipes when it comes to biological sciences. There's the clinical stovepipe, the public health stovepipe the research stovepipe, the cooperative threat reduction stovepipe. There's been a lot of communication over the last several years that really has improved in these areas, but there's still room to grow here. But one of the areas I'd like to make sure we talk about is your work at the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, in developing the mRNA platform that was really the basis of the vaccines we have today. And that seemed to me to be something where DOD really led the way, and then it kind of sat on the shelf for a few years, and then all of a sudden it was rediscovered and used in Operation Warp Speed. Could you talk a little bit about how that idea was generated? I'd love to. But let's add to the stovepipe list this idea of misinformation, disinformation, too, that all of these programs you know, going forward should have that component and, frankly, should be informed by cutting-edge understanding of social sciences and of social networks and how those are utilized. So that's what I've been proposing in my previous talk is like, let's, let's cut down the different stovepipes because you're absolutely right. They are still alive and well. But as we break those, let's bring in the, the communications and the health behaviors points too. The DARPA story, yeah, I, I got a chance. I spent six years at DARPA and it was 
Absolutely extraordinary. I mean, just just extraordinary. I, I do want to make a general point and then very specifically. There's a lot that's been written about DARPA and what, what makes DARPA special and can we take DARPA for health now with the Biden's ARPA Health Initiative is a good example. And what's what's the magic behind it? And there's a lot on that list. But one of the things I've, I've just found extraordinary is just the sense of mission. So, you know, DARPA was founded after the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. And President Eisenhower said, never again will we be surprised. And the DARPA mission now for 60 plus years is prevent technological surprise. Full stop. Clear message, clear purpose. And I think extraordinary in our government to say launched with that original purpose is still alive and well with that original purpose. How is it accomplished? A breakthrough technology for national security and through those investments that will give you those truly breakthrough things. Why I illustrate that is, is that DARPA was really interested in RNA technology many, many years before the current pandemic. It really started around the time of H1N1 and after the H1N1 pandemic. And it was really um, prioritized because of the lesson of H1N1 being we couldn't have vaccine and therapeutics fast enough to really make an impact. We had vaccine. It should have been, you know, it was, it was the influenza vaccine process. But it was clearly much too slow to be pandemic responsive. And so the RNA technology, which was nascent at the time, held that promise, though. And it was the promise of not only designing a vaccine quickly, but also being able to scale that vaccine massively because the manufacturing process actually is imminently scalable. The only thing that held us back this pandemic is it had never been scaled before. <laughs> and so it's sort of the hypothesis was proved. It just unfortunately took a little bit longer. But now the the technology is, is you know, can, has certainly proved that. And I think DARPA has that tradition of kind of the the investments that are early that seem to be much people talk about risk this idea that risk is just you really think it's going to work and darpa really gravitates to the place where in the early part of things it looks like things aren't going to work and therefore that technology doesn't tend to get funding through traditional sources that's the sweet spot for darpa the idea that if now is the right time could doubling down on that technology be transformative for national security and mrna was that and so darpa had investments in a lot of different you know universities and companies but but was one of the earliest and frankly strongest investors with moderna that was done by other programs before i got there but i ended up picking up some of those programs and and running our own with that same concept. And we emphasize Moderna um, because it's a, it's a really great case in point. But the DARPA investment was really across the waterfront in RNA technology, and it frankly continues to do. One of the interesting things now that DARPA is doing is looking at how can you make RNA in a very distributed fashion? So imagine instead of having to go to a big factory and having to take up lots of lines and lots of space in a big factory, can you make RNA with a very small footprint, like a, like a portable classroom almost? There are these pod technologies where 
you bring sort of the portable classroom. And if the machinery and the technology is, is as closed loop as possible and as small as possible, that's the next big game changer, of course, is worldwide distribution of RNA technology and using those vaccines not only for global health problems for the next pandemic, but also for cancer and other health problems. We've had to deal with chemical weapons being used in a variety of different war settings, and it's always been complicated. It's always been shrouded in uncertainty and fog of war and the like. And now it's these issues have come forward front and center in Ukraine, where we know a few things. We know that the use of them is within their doctrine. We know that they have a record of direct use and facilitated use in Syria and in other applications of sarin and fentanyl, you know, put on artillery, nerve agents applied in assassination efforts, uh, chlorine use, and that these can be, some of these can be very effective when you're dealing with concentrated urban populations that you're trying to clear. So there's a certain military logic to this that the Russians have embraced, and we know that they've also launched a preemptive sort of disinformation campaign which may be a flat, false flag operation just to create confusion and mistaken understandings of what's going on by labeling the U.S. is engaging in this sorts of thing. What does this all add up to potentially? And how do we, NATO's now rushing to put in place detection and disinfection or decontamination measures and all sorts of stuff to try and at least prepare better for this without putting you on the spot, and, and, and this is a sensitive matter. I guess I would add to your list that there, there's just sort of kind of the inherent terror or fear that's associated with this, too. And because there is, because it's terrifying and devastating. And I think, I think there's, there's also that, that invocation of they may use more horrible things, or when they are used, it strikes terror into the into the population. I think there is a part of it too is this sense of helplessness. In other words, you can be attacked with a chemical weapon, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? And so that the 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 hope that we've you know when we've worked on chemical defense and and this is you know there's a lot of there's a lot of analogy and overlap to biodefense as well the sort of the the terror of an anthrax attack for example well the terror of an anthrax attack is much less terrible if you've been vaccinated against anthrax or and if you get exposed to anthrax if we say look we have uh, antibiotics available for you and the sooner you take them the better and so we're going to mass distribute the challenge when we compare those to the biological attack and the chemical attack is the chemical attack is the onset is so quickly that we have to put the protection, whether you're wearing a mask or whether that's a, um, an antidote against the chemical poisoning, you have to receive that so quickly that it's, it's truly a logistics challenge. And so, you know, we have in these types of environments, you know, for decades now, our, our troops have carried some of those protective antidotes and carried them as far forward because they need to be utilized. And so, you know, we can imagine a world where if you can figure out the distribution so that you can have these antidotes available and affordable and push them forward, then that's a great remedy for not only to prevent people from getting sick so we can actually treat people, but it also 
really speaks to that fear part of it. So it's like, okay, well, we're going to hit you with chemical weapons. Well, we have plans. We, we have mitigation measures. So then it's like, well, then how do you get there? That's always the hard part, the logistics of pushing the medications forward, pushing the decontamination systems and things like that forward. It's not that we don't know how to do it. It's just that they're expensive and that they, they're expensive. It's hard to scale. There's just all of the logistics that are associated with it. But it really does kind of... It's not a perfect analogy, but it speaks to our pandemic response as well. You know, the idea of, you know, in this case, you need an antidote within minutes or ideally within hours. So you have to push the antidotes forward in the medical system. For COVID, we want to treat you as soon as possible with a oral antiviral medication, especially if you're at high risk. So there, there is this commonality in logistics and operations. And I think that is one of the things we can do, that we're not completely helpless against a chemical weapons attack. As we get close to the end of our time, let me ask you to tie together a few things that have come up in here. We talked about DOD research and some of the spinoffs that have been helpful for the world at large. Uh, you've talked about bringing in various disciplines in terms of communication, science, public health, clinical medicine, and so on. You've been quoted, and let me paraphrase here, let's take pandemics off the table. And recently yeah. at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, RARE, two researchers have uh, recently announced they believe they have a vaccine against all types of coronaviruses, as I understand that's in clinical trials at the moment which would certainly be something as excellent for military units as they traverse the world, but also could help society at large. How do we take pandemics off the table? You're the man. You've done this. We have a lot of work to do, of course, but what I, there's so much we have learned from this pandemic. And I think this really hopefully taps to the core of what you're doing with CSIS and what, what I'm trying to do at OSTP, but what we all need to collectively do. It's like, we got to take everything that we've learned and do better next time. And, and that, that's how we take, that's how we stop all future pandemics. The lesson learned of RNA technology, for example, and just being as aggressive as we were with Operation Warp Speed to press the advantage that we have there now, to be able to say, we can make a billion doses of this vaccine or that vaccine, and we can make a billion doses in a month, and we can figure out how to distribute them, make a, a room temperature vaccine or use microneedles. There's uh, you know, so many examples of pressing the advantage of making vaccines ubiquitous to tackle future pandemics, other health problems. And it's that idea of pressing the advantage of where we've done well, and also being honest and saying, you know, we really need to do better in this space. We need to do better. And I think the obvious one is obviously in terms of how we build trust in, in, the, in the public community, both domestically and globally in terms of health problems. So, so that's, that's how we're going to take pandemics off the table is be smart, not forget. Everybody wants to forget, forget this pandemic altogether. And that's the exact opposite response that you and us need to fight against. Well, let me take us back finally to the, to the cycle of crisis and complacency. Uh, Operation Warp Speed, by all measure, was an absolute success, but it was extremely well-funded. It came at a time of, of absolute crisis. It brought together people from all over government and from other places under the leadership of General Perna and uh, Dr. Salawi. And 
it attracted very bright people. You made some just audacious investments that could have worked and could not have worked. But that was all in response to a crisis. And we hopefully someday will enter a period of complacency. How do we take the same energy to do what you just described, to take these uh, technologies to the next step during a period of complacency so during the next crisis they're ready instead of sitting on the shelf like the mRNA vaccine did for a, a decade? Yeah, complex and difficult question. First of all, though, what we have to do we have to, Operation Warp Speed worked for a lot of the reasons that you said, but it was also, it was just, it was just this idea of questioning the usual process and saying, it doesn't take a decade. It only takes this long. It can be done. And I think we do have to change the culture of our government and we do have to change the culture of how we, of how we are successful even when we may not have all the resources that we want. For example, if we are the idea of, you know, Operation Warp Speed obviously is a public-private partnership, and the government in this case obviously invested a lot, um, but the companies invested a lot too. And so when we may not have as much resources, how do we leverage the best of the private sector and incentivize it? And part of that is negotiating really mutually beneficial cost-share contracts with them. And we didn't used to do that. <laughs> we didn't used to negotiate um, like we do now. We didn't used to use other transactions instead of the traditional uh, base contracts. And there's been just this explosion of new ways that we can work with the private sector and you know, just do business differently. That's how we're going to be successful is that we're going to say we're doing things differently. We're actually successful. If the scrutiny is going to come and say, well, you can't have this much money because you're not getting results. We got to get results. And we, we can't take decades to get results of our next generation vaccines. The expectation is now you can develop a vaccine in a year or two. So so we, we, we have to do really well and show people results. So even if they're complacent, will say, I know, but this is really, really good value for money. And the third is this idea of spinning off or pivoting the gains in pandemic preparedness to other things. I think a case in point that I already made is this idea of making vaccines for a global health purpose and going after sort of showing that the technology and the preparedness for pandemics can also have massive global health benefit, ending the HIV pandemic, for example, or eradicating malaria. You know, taking on those ambitious goals that may not be classically pandemic preparedness, but demonstrating success in those areas is also the best way to prepare for the next pandemic, too. We just have to, we have to do those well. <laughs> we have to win <laughs> in those areas. And so, and the way we win is we learn our lessons from, from this pandemic, the, the things that worked and institutionalize them. Well, Matt Hepburn, thank you very much for all the work you've done in the past, for all of your work in Warp Speed. And we think you're absolutely the right person to have at the White House at OSTP right now Thank you to take these forward. And we look forward to working with you as we take our CSIS commission forward. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.